Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. Hi, and welcome to this edition of The American Idea. On this episode, we're going to be talking about one of the most important speeches by an American president, Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, given on March 4th, 1865. And to join us uh, in that conversation today and help us understand the meaning of this really important address is our old friend, welcome back, uh, Professor Lucas Morell. He's the head of the politics department at Washington and Lee University in Lexington, Virginia. Lucas is a wonderful teacher and has taught in Ashbrook's Teaching American History programs and our master's program for teachers, and also a, a very fine and noted author on Abraham Lincoln, having done books on Abraham Lincoln and the American founding, and including books on Abraham Lincoln's speeches like the second inaugural. Lucas, thanks for joining us. Glad to be back, Jeff. Well, let me ask you, um, the second inaugural address. It's in March of 1865. Help us understand the context of the speech. What's happening in March of 1865? A few things are happening. The two major ones are Lincoln has been reelected. And by March of 1865, the war, if not over, it's, if it's not the end, it's the beginning of the end. Proof, Farragut has wrapped up all the ports and rivers. They're now back in uh, federal union hands. General Grant, Sherman, and Sheridan are slowly, but looks like surely tightening the noose on the most important Confederate general, and that's Robert E. Lee. Appomattox is, is, is uh, armchair quarterback, uh, quarterbacking here, but Appomattox will take place in a little more than five or six weeks. Lee is on the run. And everybody except for Jeff Davis thinks pretty much that the war is about to be over. And in fact, Lincoln in the address says, the progress of our arms upon which all else chiefly depends is as well known to the public as to myself and is, I trust, reasonably satisfactory and encouraging to all. <laughs> yeah, underlying understatement of the year. <laughs> so the Union, is, the Union Army is about to win the war. Lincoln and everybody else pretty much knows it. Lincoln's been reelected, as you say, so he's coming in for this second term of office. Yes. Um, here in March, he's going to give this speech. Um, people are already looking to the end of the war. Is given the tone and content of this speech, is it surprising to you that he gives this kind of second inaugural? Because if it were me and I were the president, or I was one of the president's supporters, I would expect triumphal notes. I would expect, yeah, we won. Yeah, we're about to win the war. Yeah, we're really going to stick it to those rebels. You would expect that kind of tone, or here's the detailed program I have for after the war and how we're going to deal with things. That doesn't seem to be at all what the speech talks about. This is a speech like no other presidential speech and arguably any other American political speech uh, in our history. It is uh, uh, sui generis. It is its own thing. Uh, and it's its own thing in a number of ways, um, two of which uh, you suggest. It is not, it is anything but triumphal uh, in its tone, in its claims. 
uh, we'll see incredibly, and we know that uh, there, there, I don't know that there's been a single president in the United States who could be described as humble, right? You don't serve or stand for election. You don't seek a nomination unless you think you're all that. Yeah, uh, don't you Lincoln have to be was, really ambitious? Yeah, you, Lincoln was supremely ambitious, but thankfully also supremely moral, in my opinion. And, and this is a speech of uh, incredible, astonishing modesty. And we're going to get to how that is displayed in the speech in a second. And so it is, it is odd in that respect. Uh, and it is very odd in the fact that he says almost nothing about what his administration is going to do in the next four years. We've got to remember all inauguration speeches, whether re-election or not, have to do at least a few things. And first and foremost, they have to be unifying. Elections, by definition, unless you're George Washington, are divisive and, and constructively so. They could be destructively so, but, but elections are constructively divisive. We got to know we got these problems. Here is what we think the problems are and what we think are the policies that will solve those problems. After an election, though, you got to bring the people together, right? We're all Federalists. We're all Republicans, right? I reversed it, but that's Jefferson in his first inaugural address. Um, and, and, and so we should be looking for unification in this speech. And Lincoln, it, it, let's just say he sets the bar very high for himself in how he will attempt to forge a unity of the country. But most especially, they need to be at least in broad strokes, spelling out, as we call it today, the vision thing. Where are you now as the successfully elected president, where are you going to take us, especially if the war is all but over? What is peacetime America going to look like, given the fact not only that we have been at war, it's been a peculiar war, it has been a civil war, if wars can be civil. We have been shooting at each other just because we stopped shooting. Does that mean the hearts and malevolence behind those bullets and bayonets have suddenly become reconciled? So we're going to find that in this speech, Lincoln does attempt to unify, does attempt to spell out a future, but the way he, do, he does it is very peculiar. And as I say, he sets the bar very high for himself. In short, what Lincoln does in a little more than 700 words is he tries to forge a common public memory of the recent past, the last four years. And, and unless he is successful in doing that, it will be a very rough future for the country. Hmm. So the, the speech, as you mentioned, is 700 and some odd words. It's, I think it's only four paragraphs, yes. right? So it's a short speech. It's long, sometimes presidential inaugurals are, go on and on and on and on. Um, Lincoln Gettysburg Address, only 200 and maybe 72 words or something. And then this speech, only 700 words. So Lincoln had this amazing ability to say a lot in a very few words. Indeed. He seems to be doing that here again with this speech. Yeah, and just to mention briefly here, uh, I think he learned something from his composition of the Gettysburg Address. In the same way that the Gettysburg Address devoted a paragraph to the past, then a paragraph to the present, and then a concluding paragraph to the future. This speech as well, beyond the, after he gets through the preamble or the preface of the first paragraph, 
The second, third, and fourth paragraph follow the pattern of the Gettysburg Address. He takes us back four years to the condition of the country to say something important about that, to make some observations that he thinks will be helpful, to then look at the most important thing. I'm calling it the present, but it's essentially uh, the, the last four years you know, compressed into their moment on March 4th, 1861. What, what, what is the culmination or the fruition of what has happened in the most recent past? That's the present. And then the final paragraph, which is really just one sentence, he gives one sentence about what this speech should have devoted all of its time to, if it was a traditional inauguration right. speech, which is to the future. Now what? And the what in everybody's mind is one word, reconstruction, a word he doesn't even use in the second inaugural. Amazing. So that's amazing. We can read this as past, present, and future, as you say, following that same structure from the Gettysburg Address. Let me, if I can, if you'll allow me to just read, starting with the second paragraph of this wonderful address, what Lincoln says about the past. And the past comes up to the first shots of the Civil War. The present, as you say, in the next paragraph is the Civil War. And then the last paragraph is now that the Civil War is ending, what's the future? But let me read, go back and say what Lincoln says here about the past. He says, on the occasion corresponding to this four years ago, his first inaugural, all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war. All dreaded it. All sought to avert it. While the inaugural address was being delivered from this place, devoted altogether to saving the Union without war, insurgent, agent, insurgent agents were in the city seeking to destroy it without war, seeking to dissolve the Union and divide effects by negotiation. Both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than let it perish. And the war came. Mm. Help us understand this first paragraph. Yeah, um, and I'm glad that you read it because in the hearing of it, uh, certain words and a certain theme should come to mind. Uh, the word I'm thinking about is all, 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 both. Um, Lincoln, in getting the country March 4th, 1865 to think about that same date four years earlier he wants to remind the country that we were once one country even though that pivotal presidential election did divide the country and ultimately separated some americans who tried to form their own nation he wanted to remind americans who have been shooting at each other we were once brothers we were once friends we were once fellow countrymen. He wants to set up an understanding of the war as a huge outlier, an aberration. What we have just been undergoing is not typical of America. We were not born two separate nations. We were once one nation. None of us wanted this war. We all hated war. We all dreaded it. And so that kind of mindset and attitude, Lincoln thinks, we can regain that because we were once that. So we were once unified and the war came. It's interesting he doesn't say, and the rebels started the war. Yes, very important. That, that and the war came is, 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 is Shakespearean in its, its, its simplicity, monosyllabic, right. 
And it, it shows just, us Lincoln's reading of Shakespeare, of the Bible. Absolutely, absolutely. In many ways, we'll see. Uh, but it's something of a non sequitur, isn't it? How can all, all, all end up with war? <laughs> if all deprecated it, if all dreaded it, if nobody wanted it, how did it happen? He's setting up an explanation on further review, if you will, that he gives in the third paragraph. Again, if war came in spite of most people's intentions, north and south of the Mason-Dixon line, then perhaps there is another actor to this dramatis personae. Perhaps there's something else operating that he reveals in the third paragraph. Let me read that paragraph. One eighth of the whole population were colored slaves, not distrib distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war. To strengthen, perpetuate, and extend this interest was the object for which the insurgents would rend the Union, even by war. While the government claimed no right to do more than to restrict the territorial enlargement of it, neither party expected for the war the magnitude or the duration which it has already attained. Neither anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease with, or even before, the conflict itself should cease. Each looked for an easier triumph and a result less fundamental and astounding. Let's stop there. What's Lincoln saying? Whew, okay. <laughs> uh, the, the thing he does not mention in the second paragraph, he find one of the things he doesn't mention in the second paragraph, he finally mentions at the outset of the third, which is slavery. The second paragraph told us that one of the parties would uh, make war, whereas Lincoln would accept it, but we don't know why. If all, all, all didn't like war, why did one of the parties, and notice he doesn't identify the parties as North and South, he will do that only one time in the third paragraph for a very specific reason. But in the second paragraph, we get a war, but we don't know why. All we know is somebody really doesn't want the union to continue, but we don't know what's wrong with the union. Turns out slavery on one side is the thing that was so important. It was even more important than perpetuating a union that had been in existence since the Revolutionary War. And so uh, that, that Lincoln introduces slavery and we'll eventually he, we'll, he, we'll see uh, uh, another actor introduced uh, in a moment. But at this point, Lincoln, I want us to notice here, doesn't divide the country into sections. He says he wants to minimize the divisive element, calling it insurgents. And of course, he's exaggerating here because those insurgents actually represented ultimately Americans in 11 states. Right. <laughs> but he says this interest, the slave interest, was somehow the cause of the war. I mean, here's Abraham Lincoln saying to those who would ask, what really was the cause of the war? Abraham Lincoln, make, Lincoln makes it clear here, it was slavery. It was slavery, but the, the pivotal somehow is the thing that makes you pause. Why didn't he just say slavery caused the war? And we'll see that he doesn't just flat out say slavery caused the war because he himself in his first inaugural address 
said he wasn't going to touch slavery where it already existed. Lo and behold, he emancipates them on January 1st, 1863. Of course, the context that's different is at that point in time, we've been at war, whereas at the first inauguration, we were at least broad strokes still at peace. All right. What is this other force that's at work? He goes on to say. Thank you. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any man should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. But let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Full stop. <laughs> that for me is the fulcrum of the speech. The Almighty has his own purposes. So Lincoln now introduces, if you will, a third party. If the war is between two parties, roughly, North and the West, of course, uh, contra the South, slaveholding states, not all of them, four of the so-called border slave states, Maryland, Kentucky, Missouri, and Delaware, have remained loyal to the Union. Uh, Lincoln says, guess what? These last four years, we cannot understand them unless we understand that there has been a God active in superintending what we mere mortals believe was simply the product of our own intentions. It turns out, and the war came, makes it seem like, uh, right, that war is a person in and of itself. It turns out the war is an instrument, perhaps, we'll see that Lincoln uses this important word, suppose, but it turns out that war might well have been the intention of a third party, namely this superintending divine being that Lincoln himself says both sides believe in. Both sides wanted to say, the South wanted to say, God's on our side. The North wanted to say, God's on our side. The abolitionist says, God's in favor of freedom. The slaveholders say, God is in favor of slavery. Yes. Everybody's reading the same Bible and they're drawing different conclusions from that same sacred text. Another non sequitur, right? When you say both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, you should not get the following. Each invokes his aid against the other. Shouldn't you, reading the same Bible and understanding the same God and therefore praying to that same God, come to the same conclusion? Apparently not when it came to the institution of slavery. We did not come to the same conclusion. And that's the mystery. Uh, that's the conundrum that is America. And that is uh, what Lincoln is trying to unpack in only 701 words. And what's amazing to me looking at this is he could have said, and those guys were clearly wrong. Yes. Yeah, and he God's clearly not on their side. That's idiotic. He's on our side. The farthest he goes is to say, it may seem strange that any man should dare to ask a just God's assistance <laughs> in wringing their bed from the sweat of other men's faces. But let us judge not that we be not judged. That seems to me, again, a quote, if I'm not mistaken, from Scripture. Uh, it's from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 1. And he's also quoted or alluded to Genesis 3 when he talks about wringing one's bread from the, 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 the toil of another man's 
however he puts it, wringing the bread from the sweat of other men's faces. That's an uh, allusion to Genesis. This is an interesting speech biblically, shall we say, because Lincoln, who was fond of making biblical references, usually would devote himself either to the Old or the New Testament. Here he quotes on several occasions both, and later we shall read, he actually gives us a literal quotation from the book of Matthew. So we have this situation where both sides think God is on their side. Lincoln says, well, if a just God is on anybody's side, he would probably be on the side of those who oppose slavery. But he says, but let's not judge that we be not judged. The Almighty has his own purposes. Then he goes on to say, quoting, woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which, in the providence of God, must needs come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believer in a living God always ascribed to him? Help us understand here. This sounds like Lincoln the theologian, Lincoln yeah. the preacher, Lincoln the minister. Exactly. Frederick Douglass said that was no state paper. That was a sermon. Uh, 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 Associate Justice Clarence Thomas, in fact, has referred to the second inaugural as uh, Lincoln's Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> um, how do we understand this? Uh, I mentioned modesty earlier. Remember that Lincoln said, neither anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease with or even before the conflict itself should cease. Lincoln is acknowledging that he himself hadn't intended for emancipation to take place, let alone abolition that will follow the 13th Amendment that he supported, which was passed finally by the House on January 30th by the required two-thirds majority and is now making its way through the states for three-fourths ratification, which Lincoln will not see tragically because of the assassination, but will happen in December. So Lincoln himself is saying the way things are going with slavery itself is not something I anticipated or intended, and it's certainly not something that my adversary anticipated. Conclusion, he says, each looked for an easier triumph and a result less fundamental and astounding. He is asking both sides to admit that even though the war, yes, is ending with a victory for the North, which Lincoln, yay, commander in chief, has prosecuted, he doesn't pat him on the back. He wanted to win the war, but he certainly didn't intend for such a costly war, and he did not intend for emancipation, let alone abolition, something or someone else has been at work. And so, Jeff, you're right. Lincoln could have pointed to signs on the ground, slavery almost gone, a war almost over with a Union victory, and said, yes, we did it. Go us. And instead points everybody to the skies or out there and says, maybe someone else is at work here. And part of the work, it seems, that God is doing is this war has come to both sides and the terrible, bloody cost of the war 
for both north and south and the hundreds of thousands of people killed and wounded and maimed and families torn apart, the terrible tragedy that Lincoln himself personally saw and experienced. This, he says, God gives to both north and south this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came. Look, if I'm a person in the Union in the North listening to this, I think, wait, what are you talking about? Our, sla- our state, Massachusetts, for example, we don't have slavery. The war is a punishment for us, against us. How can that possibly be? Yeah. Um, notice the adjective he gives for slavery. It's not Southern. It's American. He'll go on to explain why he can justify that adjective. But at this point, he states his conclusion up front. This is a national institution. It is not a Southern one. Yes, earlier in the third paragraph, he identifies the location of those slaves as the Southern portion of the country. He doesn't say the South, right? He doesn't want us to continue to identify two halves that we're trying to mush together. Uh Uh-uh. The Southern portion of a whole, of a country, of a nation. Yes, that may be where the slaves were located, but who benefited from that slave? labor. Where did that cotton get refined? Where were those mills? Where are the backs that are wearing those woolen goods? They aren't just south of the Mason-Dixon line. They are in the north. Who's building those ships that is carrying most of that raw cotton to the United Kingdom, where it will come back as finished goods? Who built those ships? That's up in New England. And so Lincoln, wraps all of those facts up into that one adjective, American. And so if slavery was something that, if you will, was something that the nation benefited from, and if it turns out God believes that was something no one should have benefited from, but in his wisdom beyond ours, he tolerated for a while, then the woe is going to be on those who benefited from it and that is both North and South. So then he goes on to say, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may steadily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Wow, that is without question, uh, not just the most harrowing passage of the speech, but the most harrowing passage of any speech by an American president in our nation's history. Uh, Let's remind ourselves, Lincoln does not claim he knows this is what God is doing and has been doing in the war. What he is trying to suggest here, if we shall suppose, he's suggesting perhaps this is the best way as a nation we can come together after a warring nation against ourselves, perhaps this is the best way to understand what we've been undergoing. And that is a punishment. Scourge 
You don't use a scourge on an animal in the field. A scourge is an instrument of punishment, of torture. Uh, it's a cat of nine tails to the back of a man who has done something very grievous and wrong. Lincoln is trying to contextualize four years of blood and treasure lost and spent as a result of a war in the context of something that has been happening to a distinct people on American soil, not for four years, not for 40, but for 250 years. What kind of toil? Unrequited. We have been stealing as a people from a particular minority of us for a quarter of a millennium. So yes, you lost a son, a brother, a father in this war. Yes, for four years, these horrible things you have been undergoing. How long have black people on American soil been undergoing their own torture and loss? Not four, but 250 years. So what Lincoln is saying is, think about this four as not four long years. Think about it, in fact, as a very short time. And in fact, I've always, uh, not always, but I have come to the conclusion that this is a speech not just about God's justice. It's a speech about God's mercy. We're going to see that you can't get to the fourth paragraph. The most famous line is in the fourth paragraph. You can't get there without getting through this tough part of the third paragraph. Um, so we're, this tough part is we hope the war will be taken away. This war is a punishment from the living God yes. for our sin of slavery. Uh, we hope and we fervently pray that the scourge of war will be taken away. And of course, then there might be people listening to the speech who say, then we should sue for peace right now. And we should end this war right now. Let's mm -hmm. stop it. This peace party. And it was strong, as you know, in the election of 1864. And yes. Lincoln's response to that is, no, the war will go on until it's over. Until we win. Until, uh, and it's, it could be another 250 years if that's necessary. If God wills that it continues. So he reminds us that, yes, the war is all but over, but it isn't completely over yet. Lee is still on the run. We don't know that he's going to surrender. We don't know that he might not head to the hills and for several more years have renegade guerrilla soldiers here, here there, what, we, what Union soldiers experienced in the Shenandoah Valley, right? Um, we, we don't know exactly how this war is going to end. It could continue. And so what, if we understand this war as a punishment and God does wrap the thing up, say, by April or May of this year, it turns out that this war is actually a mercy from God because he only punished the American people for four years. And if that is true, we'll see he, it, it, it helps him now say the exhortation of the fourth paragraph. Let me read that famous last paragraph. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, and to do all which may achieve a just and cherish 
a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Yeah, uh, if it's the case, and Lincoln, generally speaking, is correct here. If it's the case that most Americans would call themselves, consider themselves Christians, they understand themselves in world historic, cosmological, theological ways as people of the book. North and South, if they are believers of the same Bible and that same God, that one God, uh, if that is true, what Lincoln is saying is, if you see the war as I do, as a divine scourge for the sin of slavery, which is American, not Southern, and if God has chosen to punish us, but not give us a full reckoning for what we have done wrong for so long, if in short, God can be merciful to you who believe in him, surely you can be merciful to your neighbor to your friend, to that man who used to hold slaves, to that man who used to enslave you, to that man who used to be shooting at you. Surely you can extend charity, the biblical word for love, to one another. Surely you have no right to have malice in your hearts to one another. Surely you should not be seeking to exact any more vengeance for this or that crime as you see it that brought about or was the product of this war. If you are a believer in the living God and this war is in fact not horrific justice, but actually a generous extension of God's mercy to this country, go and do likewise. That is the message of this speech. Hmm. And this it's not that God's on the north side, God's on the south side. It's not the question of which side God is on. It's almost as though here he's saying, the question is, are we on God's side? Yes. Are we seeing this war as God wants us to see this war? And, and Lincoln thinks he can afford to present it that way precisely because he himself did not consider that slavery needed to be gotten rid of sooner rather than later. He was content to get rid of slavery over time, as he put it, on the course of ultimate extinction. Uh, he, as a Republican in March of 61, said, we only argue and campaigned successfully on the notion that we believe Congress could ban it in the federal territory so that over time, eventually, the Southern states would give it up according to their own uh, you know, prudential lights, as it were. Turns out God had other things in mind, even those uh, uh, that Lincoln uh, did not see. Um, he gives this wonderful uh, letter a couple of weeks later to this political operative named Thurlow Weed. Yeah, I mean, because I just have to tell you, Lucas, this is not the tone that you would expect. <laughs> and I don't think there are going to be a lot of people who say, rah, at the end of this speech. It, it, it leaves us thinking. It leaves us content, contemplating what have we done wrong? Yes. How can we act toward others without being self-righteous ourselves? Um, it's not that kind of triumphalist speech that political people want to hear. No, it's in fact what he makes explicit in this letter to Thurlow Weed. He says, I essentially announced that there was a difference of purpose 
between all Americans and the God they claim to believe in. But he says, if there's any humiliation in it, and by that he means if anybody had been humbled by this message, I was the first one humbled as I came to conceive it and now decided to deliver it. I would, in other words, not deliver this unless I was the first person in line to now have to act in accordance with my own exhortation. I am going to practice what I just preached. Surely you can do the same. What about after the war? Tragically, as you say, Lincoln is assassinated. Tragically for the country, this vision of America and the American idea coming through the Civil War and giving birth to a country based on malice toward none and charity for all, Lincoln can't see that. Reconstruction happens after the war. The American idea is still continuing to be debated and disputed. What, what does this help us understand, these, this last paragraph, about Lincoln's vision for the country going forward in the future? Uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier, he only devotes this final sentence to what we would have expected have been the, the, the sum and substance of the speech, which was, what are going to be the details of Reconstruction? Um, he would go on in April to give that sort of speech, what's known as his last public address in April of uh, April 11th, I think, uh, 1865. Uh, it's not literally his last public speech. But this speech, notice he gives no details. It's all about what is it that I know we are going to be and need to be doing in the short run under my new administra uh, second administration? binding up the nation's wounds. We have all been in some form or fashion uh, the victims of this horrific war, uh, but a war that we must, must understand as a providential one, as one where God has, chased, has chastened us severely, but also mercifully, if, it's a, if it comes to the conclusion that it looks like it will, as a union victory, but also one that abolishes slavery, we have all got to accept that as God's judgment and verdict on this country. And in so doing, this has to be the basis of any policies going forward, any attitude going forward, cannot be vengeful. Uh, black versus white cannot be vengeful, North versus South. Uh, we have got to uh, admit, as Denzel Washington put it in the movie Glory, the stinks on all of us, right? Uh, We've got to admit that we have all been, uh, we all have this taint. And if we accept this war and its conclusion as a just one, the North should have won, i.e. the Union preserved. Slavery should have been eliminated. We see that not just as the conclusion of the might of men, but as the, the judgment of the Almighty. That is the only way Lincoln believes we can move forward as one country. Alas, our, our halting steps towards that without Lincoln got us going in that direction for about eight to 10 years, what we know now as Reconstruction or call Reconstruction. Uh, it was called at the time Reconstruction or rest Restoration. But these all came almost to naught because the rebels, uh, shall we say, did not buy what Lincoln was selling uh, in this speech and it would take another 90 years uh, from uh, at least emancipation uh, until we got uh, any serious civil rights 
uh, laws and voting rights laws that would implement the reconstruction amendments of 13, the 13th, 14th, and 15th. Yeah, but we didn't just need to come back together politically. We didn't just need to come back together militarily. We needed to have this, as Lincoln says, this spirit of charity, the spirit of humility. Uh, we needed for the American idea to flourish, Americans had to have a certain moral character, a certain set of qualities that would allow the American idea to flourish after the Civil War. That's Lincoln's vision going forward for the future. We, we had to have both the same mind, the same understanding, what I've been calling a common public memory of what just happened and its significance. Uh, we had to see it as a just uh, conclusion, as he puts it in that last sentence, uh, just and lasting peace. Uh, but we also, and this is the tougher one, um, we had to have the same heart and, and that's something you can't change overnight. And that, was, that would be something I would believe Lincoln through his rhetoric would have had to be cultivating and shaping and influencing uh, over the next four years. Uh, and who knows if that work wasn't done, who knows Lincoln might have been the first president to serve not just two terms in a row, but three, it might've taken a third term uh, for that work to be as, uh, sufficiently completed. But, uh, uh, it was a uh, uh, it was a crazy maker either way. Lincoln understood that his second term was going to be in certain ways even more difficult than the first. Right. Wow. Thank you, Lucas, for those insights into the American mind, the American heart, and especially the American idea. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. We really appreciate it. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice. Subscribe for more at ashbrook.org slash AmericanIdeaPod and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at AMIdeaPodcast. From the Schramm Library in Ashland, Ohio, I'm Jeff Sickett.